and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Benjamin Ensor. Happy New Year to everyone listening. As we wave goodbye to 2021, we're going to take this episode to look ahead at what we think the financial services industry has on the horizon for 2022. So, peering into our crystal balls, I'm joined by my brilliant co-hosts. On the show today, we have Guerra Kawana, Product Manager at 11FS. Guerra, lovely to have you. What have been your highlights of 2021, um, personal, professional, or otherwise? Uh, yeah, no, I think definitely really, really excited to be here for the predictions show. Uh, personally, I don't know. Like I'd say like, I, I it's not personal, more like um, what happened in the world that I'm really excited about that that I may have may or may not have been involved in uh, in some parts of it is just the rise of, of organized retail investors and like the like it's a revolution is coming and it's happening and uh, so you know when we look at like what happened with GameStop and and people organizing to like basically dethrone like massive hedge funds um, uh, as well as this the Constitution DAO that recently just happened I mean they did they didn't they didn't uh, win they didn't they didn't uh, purchase uh, the Constitution but uh, the fact that that many people were able to raise that much money. Um, and be involved in in something that insane it was pretty exciting. It's also it resulted in uh, Sotheby's now you know li- listing pricing for certain things in in cryptocurrencies like ether, for example. Um, so yeah, I'm, I've been really excited to see the rise of uh, retail investors just kind of like flipping uh, various um, speculative markets on their heads and and I guess scaring a lot of hedge fund managers who who may have gotten too cozy. I love your ambiguity about whether you may or may not have been part of it. You know, I think you're up on the barricades leading some of those charges, but um, <laughs> very good. Excellent. Um, and also joining our predictions panel, we have Alex Hooper, who is a senior software engineer at 11FS Foundry. Welcome, Alex. Thank you for joining us. What's been your highlight of 2021? Yeah, thank you, Benjamin. Second time on the pod. Um, yeah, great to be here. So, I'll go personal and professional and keep it quick. So personal, I got engaged, which was nice. Um, Not really fintech related, but that was a big personal win for me. So um, yeah, that was brilliant. And then professionally, um, I was nominated joint superhero of the year, which is kind of like our internal employee of the year uh, competition um, yesterday. So that was a big, big win for me. So sorry, all very me focused, but uh, but too Congrats, that's huge. Thank you. That is super exciting. Many, many congratulations. Okay, well, with that, let's get into the show. So before we get into our predictions for 2022, uh, let's take a quick look back at what we at 11 of us predicted for 2021 to see how they matched up um, with what really happened. So I'm going to read out a couple of predictions, and uh, then we'll, we'll talk them through. So In 2021, at the beginning of 2021, we predicted that banks would have no choice but to go all in on digital. And this came from Simon Taylor, who said, across the regional banks in the US, community banks or building societies in the UK, which were previously built on relationships, you're now seeing Apple Pay, Google Pay and wallet adoption in the US, as well as the rise of Cash App and Venmo. How do you build that relationship with your customer if the day-to-day interaction doesn't happen with your brand anymore? What we will see is a lot of bank branch closures and people being a lot more creative about where growth is going to come from when you've got less brand touch points with your customer. So I think over to, let's start with with you, Alex. Do you think we saw that happening? Did we 
did we see banks really going in all in on digital? Well, I guess it depends on where you're looking from, from like a, a geolocation perspective, right? Um, I know in the US, for example, a data showed that the industry had closed over 4,000 branches, but actually they also opened over 1,000. So it's a bit of a bit of an opening closing mix going on um, down there. That data comes from S&P, Global Market Intelligence Data. Um, I, I think if you look at the UK side, it says that there was actually a surge um, in the number of branches closing, with over 736 shutting their doors this year alone, and actually another 220 already lined up for next year. So I think across the UK and the US, it looks like they are definitely, uh, that prediction is coming true, I believe. I don't know, what, what about you, Guerra? What do you think? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the closure of bank branches has been pretty like massive across the board. Um but I, I do remember seeing, I can't remember who it was exactly. I did try to look for this story. This was a while ago, earlier this year, about um, a company that was investing in like in consolidating bank branches uh, for people in rural areas and uh, basically to serve uh, like last mile type customers. Um, I believe this was probably possibly going to be like, Within the post office, so like I, I, I don't know. I think I think that it has happened. I think Simon was definitely right. I think a lot of banks have gone digital. I don't know whether or not we. I, I do have a score sheet uh, for for how they've done, and <laughs> I will keep my opinions to myself for today. But um, I think definitely a lot of banks have digitized, but may not have gone truly digital uh, in the last year. Um, but yeah, yeah. To me, I think. I, th- I think digital is about more than just the, 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 the touch points. I mean, yes, of course, you know, branches are a sort of sign, a symbol of traditional banking. Um, but to me, digital has always been about much more than just the touch points that you serve customers through. Being digital is not having an app. Being digital is changing your whole infrastructure. So to me, I think actually one of the most significant things was JP Morgan's decision to go with Thought Machine for its core banking and shifting to the cloud. You know, having one of the largest banks in the world making that kind of shift, to me, that's the sort of sign of um, banks becoming truly digital or or trying to become truly digital rather than just digitizing. So, so for me, that probably is the best evidence that's, I mean, of course, I think someone is right, but that's the sort of best evidence that it was actually happening uh, in 2021. Um, that that I saw. I, it's interesting. So just a few weeks ago, I saw an article um, in a UK paper, um, and it was around a woman who was organising her bills by essentially what she was doing was making these physical little uh, plastic pieces of paper, which you could almost see as pots. Um, and and this really highlighted something to me is that there's still a lot of people who are not getting access to these digital first neobanks and they're still essentially underbanked right so i think it's a really difficult thing and i think a lot of these unbanked people rely on going to western union or going to the post office to get paid or to deposit money and i think this all-in digital is still not really feasible because it leaves a huge proportion of people underbanked um and i i think there's still a lot of work to be done around how we can how we can cater to those people who no, don't necessarily have a Monzo app or a Revolut app or something like that, and, and bringing them into that world, I feel like there's still a big disconnect. Because I'm a young millennial, I'm a young Gen Z in, in engineering, and I know about all of these things, all these features, and all these new banks that exist. But there's a huge proportion of people who are, you know, still visiting branches, still doing everything in the old school way that, that, that don't know about these propositions and these products. So I think there's still a lot of work to do to converge these two different 
sets of people, if that makes sense. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that's why what Guerra was saying about, you know, that last mile is, is super interesting. Um, but to me, going digital, it's funny for, for me, the sort of the strategist to be talking about the, to the engineer about the technology. Um, but to me, the, the sign of going truly digital is when you start migrating your core systems to the cloud and really thinking about how do we deconstruct and re-architect our underlying systems. You know, I sort of don't care what technology the branch runs on. And I completely agree with you, Alex. Yes, you need to be able to serve all your customers across a variety of different touch points. But to me, going truly digital is about... Um, having a completely digital core to the bank, um, not about sticking a pretty app on the front of a of a you know old legacy system. Aguero. I'd say yeah, i I definitely if I could if I could agree with Simon's prediction, but also have a bit of like a wish be uh, tagged onto that. So yes, I agree. And and also with you, Benjamin, that like truly digital means like really going deep and 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 uh, looking at uh you know the core banking systems. But then my wish or kind of wish list, I guess, for for um, the future of banking is, yes, to have physical touch points, like to have in-real person touch points, uh, mostly to serve, you know, uh, newcomers. So people who may have like refugee status, uh, people who may be undocumented, um, you know, folks with disabilities, um, people in rural areas. So definitely like the, the hybrid, uh, but also like, I don't know, let's turn like bank branches into like. Some, I think people have tried this, like turn bank branches into like cool co-working spaces or like into like, it, it might become a novel thing the same way that vinyl has seen a rise. We may see a rise in, in bank branches as like speed dating locations. I don't know. <laughs> Depends. It's going to depend on coronavirus variants, isn't it? But <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's let's move on to our, our, our second prediction from, from last year. So uh, this one was that there's a gap in the market for tailored financial advice that takes into account customers' holistic financial situations and provides tailored recommendations. And this came from our colleague, Sarah Kachansky. And Sarah said, it's about looking at your entire financial position it might be the best thing for you to save, it might be the best thing for you to pay back debt, or it might be best to accrue money and spend it. The chaos of, of this year, and she was talking about 2020, will really bring home the problems people have managing their finances. They need help. A proposition that gives me great cash back is fine. A proposition that lets me save lots is fine. An account that actively manages my money is fine. But I need all those things together. So did this happen? Did we... Did you think we saw anyone in any market in the world coming through with really strong propositions delivering tailored financial advice to individuals? What do you think? Um, Guerra, should I start with you? Um, no, uh, you know, but I think I have a pretty narrow view. I, I think I definitely, well, not narrow. I think it just in the fact that like the UK and 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 in in the in the US like I we haven't seen much of that like embedded financial advice or embedded fi- like you know th- this is this is the so embedded finance is like an ingredient and this is like the actual the pie so actually having financial advice and financial tools that that are useful to you at the point of need um it's been a shame uh but i don't know i i i wonder if i, I haven't seen it at all but I, alex have you seen anything like this this year not personally, no. And I think I think there's from 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 my experience anyway. Um, I, I see this obsession with large incumbents and I guess other startups trying to emulate a lot of what these neo banks offer. So they'll they'll offer a debit card or a current account, 
but there's not much more to it other than maybe some fancy marketing to attract millennials and you know gen z there's 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 actually no meat to the products that sits there i know i think where this where, where sarah's point could could become a reality is and we'll get to this in a little bit is all around open banking and specifically variable recurring payments we'll talk about this a little bit later but i think there's still a lot to do on on that side that will allow me someone like me who is a builder to be able to hook into existing infrastructure and APIs and actually make a product that, that people will find really, really useful that will be able to, you know, invest in savings on the user's behalf or to uh, deposit, um, you know, savings in into a pot, savings pot, et cetera. Yes, there have been a few raises this year around sort of personal uh, sort of financial management, such as Plum raising a $24 million Series A. Um, and I know True Bill also raised a $45 million Series D um, as well. But I think there's, there's still a lot of work to be done on this. I actually feel like perhaps the pandemic um, slowed this this innovation down a little bit because I think a lot of these big banks and a lot of these startups were in survival mode, right? They were trying to just survive and make it through the year as opposed to really innovating. Benjamin, what do you think? I think it's incredibly hard to do. I mean, to the point you were just making, Alex, about, you know, the difficulty of getting APIs. You know, yes, we've got open banking sort of coming in in, in Europe through PSD2 and in the UK and, you know, through, uh, you know, various firms in the States like Plaid and so on. It's possible to sort of aggregate accounts and get a semi-holistic view of people's finances. Um, but it's really difficult pulling together all of their banking, all of their their, their wealth and investing and their insurance. Um, I agree with you. I think we've seen some great advances from, you know, startups like Plum or Snoop or whatever, trying to give people a more holistic view of part of their finances. But there are very few firms that have managed to encompass wealth and investing with your sort of, you know, day-to-day banking and budgeting and payments and your insurance. Um, so to me, some of the leaders are still actually traditional firms like USAA that are trying to do this. It's not brilliant. It's not beautifully digital, but, you know, firms like USAA, I think CIBC in Canada, Royal Bank of Canada, um, you know, a few of the Canadian banks are actually probably further along than most startups at this point. Um, you mentioned Canadian banks. I'm going to jump in with uh, just a shout out to Wealth Simple. I, I, so, thought, I thought you might jump in with when yeah. I mentioned Canada. <laughs> yeah, I was just there. Um, no, but Wealth Simple definitely is one of the one of the challenges. I think that that has all the ingredients and just needs to just go the you know just be nudged. So they're truly they're truly digital. Um, they they have various a suite of products, including you know like robo advisor product, investment product, cash like a a, a wallet. Uh, commission-free stock trading, uh, crypto, and then also like a tax uh, product as well for Canadians. So just making like, you know, you know, I was able to file my taxes with one click. Um, so these guys have that high level view of, or even like, you know, like holistic view of, of finances. And if like, if I had the, if I could do it, I would totally put all my money in a super app like that, like, like, well, simple. I mean, they don't, they don't have a super app. These are all different apps, but I I would love to just throw everything into a super app and just have that super app have a full picture of my 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 salary, my um my payments uh and and like spending habits, my investments, my savings and then give me tailored advice around that. So I think also, you know, we haven't seen it in 2021, but what we have seen actually is is a is a growth uh a, like a, a real need for financial advice that is um uh, for young people that 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 isn't um that basically takes into account 
a lot of truly digital things because like we've seen thousands of people, I think tens of thousands of people, probably more, um, receive these huge windfalls of cash uh, from crypto trading, from stock trading, from uh, various uh, other other ways of of, um, of in- investment online. Uh, and there's nothing really out there that that will tell this 21 year old that's just somehow received a hundred thousand dollars into his account how to you know how to how to claim and you know, how to file that tax how to how to how to save that where to put it I'm wishing I was 21 again not only because it would be nice to be 21 but also because it would be nice to have just got a hundred thousand <laughs> dollar windfall I suspect it's not quite as common as you imagine <laughs> Grow, <but yeah>. no. <laughs> no. okay um so probably sort of uh, half marks on that prediction. It's it's the holy grail, but it didn't really happen within the, the confines of the year. Okay, third prediction. Our third prediction was that autonomous financial services um, would emerge for the retail banking market. Um, so this came from David Breer. Um, and David said, the bit missing is people can't be bothered with this stuff around financial planning. People buy into a service to let other people make those decisions for them. The difficulty with financial services is that most business cases are predicated on catching someone out, e.g. going into your overdraft, your savings rate expired. And that's the problem. What people want is to buy into a service that makes you better off, not catches you out. We'll start to see a rebundling of services and layers on top of that, which is charged with one objective, make my money do better for me um, than I as an amateur could ever do for myself. So this one is is related to the previous one in terms of uh, sort of uh, financial advice and so on. But this is more about talking about it being managed autonomously for people. Did this happen, or did we actually see you know a, a, an upsurge in investors taking control of their own money and other people sort of just sort of sitting on the sidelines? Um, I know what Guerra thinks, but let's go. <laughs> so let's start with you, yeah. Alex. I um. So again, I'm I'm sort of talking from personal experience, but um. 2020 was really interesting for me because um, I I got really into investing uh, via you know apps like Free Trade um, and doing investment not based on a, on an existing fund or going through like a Vanguard type thing which a lot of people do and it's probably more sensible to do to be honest with you but I got it in, I got into it through these sort of communities through sort of word of mouth and I think a lot of people my age in their twenties um, sort of got into it that way as well maybe it's just my my sphere of sort of of, of friends but um i personally don't use any kind of wealth management products i sort of do my own research and then you know make investments based off that research which has its drawbacks right you've obviously you can yolo into something like gamestop and you know make a little bit of money here and there but then the next day you could you could lose it all um so i i from from my perspective and and my kind of generation I don't know too many people using things like robo advisors, and maybe that's because um, there's not a product that exists that that, that that caters to our needs and to, to our market. But maybe there is, and I, and I just haven't found it yet. So conscious that wasn't a, a fantastic response, but um, <laughs> I think I think you two are probably absolutely typical of fintech insiders of you know, industry people who who do indeed are very self directed and manage their own money. You're probably untypical <laughs> of young people as a whole. Yeah. <laughs> No, I, I think so. I, I, yes, I am typical in that. Yes, I am a fintech insider, and I'm, I'm quite self-directed and, and pretty plugged into what's going on. But I also do have, uh, I do use a robo advisor, and I have for years. Um, and it's, it's basically kind of set and forget. Uh, for years and years, I've just automatic, like automated payments into it. 
And that's been that's been something that, that I, I've, you know, actually, you know, genuinely forgotten about for a long time, which is, which is the point of long-term investing in ETFs and stuff like that. So, but yes, there has, I, from what I've seen as well, there has been a lack, like a, a lack of appetite for, uh, robo advisory really um and we had a really great uh, emphatic um thread today on on 11fs uh internally about robo advisory and um i think rightfully so the people who've seen bull and bear markets have uh rightfully so you know said that you know robo advisory is useful and it, it is something that you know it's more time in the market rather than timing the market uh so uh i personally whilst i'm quite very excited about about the bull market we're in right now. I do think that it has affected the you know the growth of robo advisory um you know across the board because people just are you know it's a bull run uh in all the markets. So yeah I um I mean I, I think David we, is right in the long term that this is something that is coming and that we will see more and more autonomous financial advice that we'll see the development of better and better services that that help people manage their finances do that kind of set and forget uh, thing as you said as you said Quera. but it's definitely the case that the sort of cryptocurrency explosion and the seemingly easy money that people have made you know your, your 21 year olds with their hundred thousand dollars that I'm pretty envious of um, that that's maybe distracted attention from from some investors from maybe sort of more sedate longer term investments I don't mean to say that Bitcoin or whatever can't be a long term investment it can be obviously um, but maybe that's taken some of the heat out of the opportunity and meant that VC funds have shifted elsewhere and we've not seen as much effort going into trying to create those kind of services as we might have seen. Yeah, I, I think also something around robo advisors for me would actually make me more emo less emotional about my money, and that's something that I think is, is can be quite a dangerous thing to become emotive around your investments because you end up checking them daily and you get really stressed and you end up selling and you lose money. And I think uh, having a robo advisor where you can just, like you said, set and forget really kind of takes that distances you from it a little bit, uh, which I think is is definitely a positive. So. Okay, so our fourth prediction was that we would see more US bank mergers and acquisitions at scale. And this came from our colleague Sam Moore. Uh, and Sam said, PNC is now the fifth largest bank based on asset size with the BBVA US acquisition. That's a big deal. That top 10 is tough. I'm looking at banks like Regions Bank, US Bank, Citizens Bank, M&T Bank, all as examples of possible M&A targets. For consumers, these acquisitions mean you then get a footprint across the United States. So how accurate was this? And I think the short answer is uh, it wasn't because he meant he was very specific. He mentioned four banks, uh, regions, US Bank, Citizens and M&T, and none of the four actually got acquired. However, I don't think that's the full story. Um, what do you think, uh, Guerra? So, um I think U.S. Bank acquired um, Union Bank. I think um, correct. It hasn't gone through quite yet, but they're planning to. Yeah. So it's it's, it's and also you know M and T is working on a People's Bank merger. So it's uh, yes, uh, Sam did say this. I wonder if he had insider information. We all know Sam is has ties with um, the CIA, but uh, <laughs> maybe maybe that's why he he was on the money with this. But I, yes, I think I think no, it didn't happen fully. Uh, but there things are kind of in motion and maybe that's just a, a the nature of, of the industry and of American traditional banking. Just everything has to go through a thousand people before um, any decision is made. But um, 
yeah, I, I, in terms of banking, I, I don't think we're seeing the M&A spree that we saw, like, was it what, 30 years ago or so? Um, in like hundred years ago, like there was just definitely like a spree of M&As um, uh, across banking um, in the past, but I, I don't think we're, we've seen that fully this year. I mean, Sam, he, he named the right firms. He just, he said that US bank regions, citizens and M&T would be the targets. And instead they've been the acquirers. They've been buying smaller banks as opposed to Sam's prediction that they themselves would be, would be bought. So Actually, in some ways, he's right. You know, they're, they're involved in M&A. They just, they were the acquirers rather than the acquirees. Yeah, and I think, uh, I guess, slightly less uh, banks, but more, I think it's also important to, to note how um, Visa and Plaid's acquisition, or oh, sorry, the uh, the blockbuster merger was actually blocked back in January. I thought that was pretty interesting. But I think that actually was good for Plaid um, in the sense that it enabled them to to go on and actually potentially be worth, did they do a raise or were they um, valued at, at quite a high number, I believe? Um, or maybe I'm wrong in that. <laughs> Um, I think I think you're right. I just I can't remember. I have a, I have the memory of a goldfish, um, which is good because I'm continually excited by new things. <laughs> Not your fault, Benjamin. Also, it's been a ridiculous year. Like just so much has happened. Um, like literally, like week on week, it's just like blockbuster news like that. Um, but yeah, no, the Visa and Plaid. Uh, that that that. Uh, so thank you to uh, Matthew, our <laughs> producer. He just let us know that Plaid raised. $425 million in April, which values them at $13 billion. That's billion with a B. Um, so, yeah, I guess uh, the the rumored merger was a really great PR for them. Yeah, sure was. So I think I think Sam's fundamental point was, was spot on. You know, the U.S. has a vast number of banks. A lot of those banks are very small, and you just don't get the economies of scale. Um, and if you're trying to invest in digital platforms and so on, that's really tough to do if you're really small. And yes, of course, you can outsource it to partners and so on. But nevertheless, the sort of fundamental driver in the U.S. market is is the consolidation to create that national uh, reach. And so I think Sam was spot on in his prediction. He just he just got it the wrong way around about who'd be doing the acquiring. OK, so those were last year's predictions. Um, we're going to take a quick pause here um, and then we'll be back very shortly with our predictions for the coming year. If you've been in payments for any length of time, you've seen the number of payment solutions explode. That's great for consumers, but incredibly complex for merchants and developers. That's where Primer comes in. Primer is the world's first automation platform for payments. With Primer, merchants and developers have all the underlying infrastructure and Lego blocks they need to build the best buying experiences for their customers. Learn more and book a demo at Primer.io. Now we've finished looking back, let's venture forward. Guerra, let's start with your prediction. So I predict that 2022 will be the year of the rise of the global south. So in the global south right now, fintech is no longer being imported. We're not. We're no longer seeing importation of, of fintech and, and innovation, uh, and more so starting to see homegrown giants emerge. Uh, so this time, I think in 2022, uh, with those homegrown giants that have emerged in 2021, uh, I think we're going to see a lot more of infrastructure happening um, and gaining more men- momentum. So people building BAS solutions, uh, building pipes where they, they they previously didn't exist. Um, I think that that uh, the infrastructure play is probably going to be the most important uh, to to be basically enable third party providers and other other fintechs and and even you know institutions like like 
like central banks um, use those rails. Uh, but I think that uh, there's going to be a lot more investment in the global south, you know, especially with uh, there's a lot of cheap capital floating around in, in VC circles. But uh, let's just take a look at a couple examples that I can think of right now. So the dust is kind of settling now on some massive players in the global south, like some really behemoth type players. So like I'm talking about like New Bank in Latin America who raised 2.6 billion uh, in an IPO this year. Um, so Basically, it's, it's just more than $7 billion has been invested into this uh, fintech company between 2016 and 2020. Insane. Just four years. Um, Chipper Cash in Africa. So uh, they, they're, they're based in most of Nigeria, but we've seen Chipper Cash uh, have a behemoth raise in the last this year alone, as, as well as a couple other African giants like uh, Paystack be acquired by, by Stripe. Um, we've got Flutterwave as well, uh, and Opay and Wave as well, who've become unicorns this year. So um, really exciting to see that in Africa. But uh, in Oceania, so Australia, there's also been quite a bit of, of stuff happening there. But I'm going to move, move to quickly to Southeast Asia. So uh, lots of uh, companies like like Paytm, for example. Uh, Paytm recently IPO'd. Their IPO wasn't as, uh, you know, bombastic as, as we people thought it would be, but still they're a behemoth in, in, in that market. So I think we've seen the rise of those large players. I'm excited to see what they do, be it act, like merged and acquisitions next year, uh, and also what they uh, inspire. So like that's more infrastructure plays on the continent. Yeah, I think it's super, super interesting. Um, I, I think one of the really interesting questions is how many of those companies really managed to, to, to get to scale? Um, but, and how many of them get acquired? Because, of course, if they get acquired by global firms, then that starts to sort of somewhat diminish the effect. Um, whereas if they get to scale and stand on their own feet, like, you know, Paytm has to some extent, though obviously Alipay has an investment in it, um, or indeed, you know, say, let's say some of the big Chinese um, tech firms, you really start to get those sort of national champions that can then start to to stand out to a global thing. So I think that's super interesting question about whether these startups in in on scale up sorry scale ups really in, in Latin America or Africa or Southeast Asia can get to scale without being acquired because um, that really starts to have a big impact on whether you get these kind of yeah champions of, of the south yeah, was a was it paystack that were acquired by stripe end of last year for like something yes. 200 million dollars or something like that so yeah that's a... yeah paystack was they they're they're a great uh great story but yes go on alex no 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 it was it was just it floated into my head uh, after jet benjamin's point around whether these are just sort of going to be more acquisition type plays as opposed to these products actually building out their own sort of ecosystem um in those markets i, I think there's a couple of things driving this aren't there i think one of them is is, is to your point where it's that is the vcs looking for the next thing um and here you've got you know frankly, half the world's population. Um, so massive, massive opportunity that, that to some extent has been ignored by some of the more sort of Western-based, or some of the more Western-based venture firms. Obviously, there are others that have been, you know, early early investors. Um, and then to me, the other big trend here is there are people in some of these countries who had no access to financial infrastructure at all, or very limited access only through very traditional um, sort of payment methods and so on. And suddenly you bring in digital networks or even, you know, networks of human sort of agents, you know, like telephone agents and so on. And suddenly you've got access to finance, you've got access to microfinance, to opportunity. And there's this explosion of creativity and opportunity to just make people's lives better, which is to me what fintech should be all about. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I think just blank, I think blank canvas. It's just, there's just so much opportunity, just like, you know, low CSAT, uh, just if, if people are just miserable with, with their current um, service providers or, you know, have no service providers um, and, you know, the rise of, the, of technology and also, you know, the rise of, of uh, speed to market for, for firms who, who want to solve these problems. Um, so yeah, it's very, I'm very excited to see uh, what happens next in the global South and um yeah, I'm looking at I'm looking at Africa specifically quite with a lot with a very keen eye. Do you think there's um do you think there are a couple of parts of fintech that are likely to be particularly successful next year? I mean, you talked about sort of infrastructure giants gaining momentum. Are there certain types of player? I mean, obviously, new bank has become a bit of a star, but it's you know it, we've we've seen digital banks in other markets, but are there particular types of fintech that you think are going to have a lot of success next year? Yeah, so I'd, I'd say. Two, two of them, two that I can think of right now. So we've seen payments have a you know a rise in of payments uh, startups. So like Paystack, Flutterwave, Interswitch in Africa specifically, Paytm. Um, but I think I, I'm I'm pretty bullish on payment rails. So like enabling cross border payments uh, across uh, you know these these various markets. But also I'm excited to see about open banking and what that could do. Uh, so there's some players who are trying to do that and trying to provide um, open banking solutions. Uh, in, so in Nigeria, we've seen the rise of Mono um, and uh, OnePipe, and there's a few others uh, across. But the, those are the two infrastructure plays that I that I have. If, if I was a betting person, we we may or may know that what, if I am. But if I was, <laughs> I would put my money on on those two. You're clearly a betting person, Quera. Clearly, your your investments in cryptocurrencies make that quite evident. <laughs> okay, wonderful. Um, open banking is a nice link, I think, uh, to Alex's um, prediction. So over to you, Alex. Yeah, no, definitely. That was that was very smooth, Quera. Um, well done. Um, so yeah, I mean, open banking is a bit of a, a bit of a buzz phrase, I think, in fintech at the moment. I think it has been for the, for the past few years. Um, but something I hope will start to change the sort of sentiment around at the moment, because I realize it's a little bit mixed, is something that, that, that we call variable recurring payments um, and sweeping goes with that. Now, I'll kind of break down what they are quickly for, for those who, who aren't in the know. Basically, in a nutshell, uh, variable recurring payments allow customers to safely connect authorized payment providers to their bank account so that they can then make payments on the customer's behalf which basically offers more control and transparency than existing alternatives such as direct debits and card payments. So that's variable recurring payments. And something you might hear about is something called sweeping, which is actually enabled by variable recurring payments. And that's basically the automated movement of funds for a customer between two accounts in their name. So there are loads of examples of, of where this could be used, such as sweeping from funds from a current account to a savings account or a current account to a loan account. Um, the possibilities are really endless with this with this technology. Um, but where this gets really exciting is that variable recurring payments start, don't only provide a more secure and cost-effective replacement for things like direct debits, but they're also faster and less prone to error. So I'll give you an example of where uh, VRPs and, and sweeping could, could, could be useful. So let's say that you, uh, you have a bank account and any unused money at the end of that month can be spotted automatically and then the customer could be offered the option to automatically sweep the extra money to pay off any outstanding debt. So obviously, most, most lenders are comfortable with overpayments, and some even allow payment holidays based on overpayments made. So sweeping leftover money can help repay debts quicker 
or build a safety net for months with you know unexpected bills or outgoings. Um, and I think it's also important to note that these VRPs, these variable re recurring payments, uh, are all around the rules which can be wrapped around this technology, right? Um, to date, consumers basically rely on what banks to do what is right. However, I think in the future, and hopefully this is what variable recurring payments will enable, is automated money management will be determined by the consumer or the business who the money belongs to. So I think I know and I realize on this note that um, that the CMA actually pushed back the deadline for these APIs to be implemented by, by something like six months, um, which obviously isn't fantastic and isn't brilliant. But I think if we're patient, this technology uh, within open banking can can enable so much. Uh, it actually, it sort of harks back to our our, our chat around robo advisors earlier on, and actually allowing your money to work for you as opposing to to, to, to the other way around. So, realize that was a brain dump. But thoughts on that, guys? So I'm I'm old, um, and and occasionally that has its advantages. So and and it has its disadvantages. Many of um, but how are these different to direct debits, right? Direct debits were invented in about 1960 by Unilever of all people. What can you, as an engineer, what can you do with a variable recurring payment that you can't do with a direct debit? What's what's new? What's better? Why why why, why are you right? <laughs> Great question. So direct debits are a pull from the from the end business. So let's say you set up a direct debit with your utility company, your water bill company. They a direct debit is a pull from 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 your account to their account essentially. Uh, variable recurring payments is a push from the consumer's account. So let's say so the, the consumer is in charge um, essentially. So let's say that you um, you you want to set up a uh, a variable recurring payment that every time you go into an overdraft with your let's say Santander account, uh, you could then set that up so that your savings account deposits money to top that that Santander account back up. That technology isn't really possible with direct debits, so it allow it sort of bringing the power back to the consumer as opposed to putting it on the business, which direct debit does. And also direct debits, most of the time they are fixed uh, sort of values and fixed numbers, not all the time, but with variable carrying payments, you can completely change that up and, and make it very dynamic. Okay, so you could tie it to a sort of if this, then that type rule and then do movements between institutions and things like that. Absolutely. So that point around the rules that I mentioned earlier, around you being able to sort of almost, yeah, do this if then, if if this, then that mentality um, is exactly what, what what sort of variable recurring payments would hopefully and will hopefully allow later next year. This is your prediction for next year. So so this isn't hopefully. This is you're saying it was going to happen. <laughs> yep, no it's going to happen. Scrub that from the uh, from the audio. It's going to happen. Yeah, Clara, what do you think? Yeah. I you know now that Alex has laid it out in that way, like I because I have heard the hype about you know VRPs VRP sorry and. Uh, I had the same thinking as you, Benjamin. Like, what's the difference between this and a direct debit? You know, the direct when I when I hear direct debit, I just think of gym memberships. <laughs> um, just when you're <laughs> locked in for like uh, yeah. a decade of your life and you just can't get out. Um, this feels uh, like the end user has a little bit more control. Um, this kind of also touches on Sarah's prediction earlier about um, financial advice at the point of need. So this could actually spin up use cases that. That, that people uh, could use later down the road. So for example, like you said, like money left over, um, having that go into, you know, your, your, uh, a savings account or, 
um, uh, receiving a windfall of cash and it, that triggering, you know, you, you obviously giving giving permission, but that triggering various other activities. Uh, but yeah, I think VRPs. Um, thank you, Alex. You've explained it better to me than like anyone, uh, especially when this when sweeping was was in the news. I was kind of like scratching my head about like what's the big deal here. So thank you. So it's going to happen in other countries. So you, you talked about the UK when you when you were talking about it. Are we going to see this in Australia, India, uh, across the European Union? It's a great question. I think it really depends on the. Uh, I, I guess the in the UK it's the CMA nine right that come together and and, and create this sort of. Uh, I guess you call it legislation or regulation. Um, it's basically an API contract agreement as to how how they're going to go about implementing this 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 technology. You could call it. Um, I know in Australia um, their open banking efforts are similar to those in the UK. I think they're a couple of years behind. Um, they actually announced the NPP, which is the new payments platform, um, which is basically similar to the CMA nine, but it involves sort of thirteen of Australia's biggest banks. Um, to sort of create a set of guidelines for faster, frictionless bank-to-bank payments. Um, and I think that was actually back in July 2013, and it's only launched, what, back end of last year slash now. Um, and I know places, uh, I know also India as well, um, around 2016, um, the United, Unified Payments Interface um, was, was, was created. Um, but I'm not a huge expert outside of the UK, to be totally honest with you. But I think there's there's this work being done to emulate the UK, perhaps. Okay. Well, um, we'll have some easy predictions for 2023 if it does, if your 2022 prediction proves correct. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Okay. Uh, so now on to, to my prediction. And I had um, I had a whole bunch of things I was thinking, I think is coming. I, you know, I think we're going to see a lot more artificial intelligence. I think we're going to see an acceleration in the sort of payments wars between merchants and payments networks as merchants try and drive down their costs and so on. But the one I settled on um, is that I think we're going to see far more brands offering financial services to specific audiences. So building on the sort of growth of embedded finance, I think we're going to see a huge growth explosion, if you like, in the number of brands and indeed fintechs aiming financial services at specific audiences. Um, specific audiences of people who've got things in common, whether that's, uh, you know, doctors and dentists or um, women or um, people, you know, from particular ethnic communities or particular types of businesses. I think we're going to see a a huge growth in the number of brands that already serve particular sort of affinity groups or particular customer groups um, and new startups um, that are going to launch focused on specific groups and they're going to use that brand affinity they have um, to make their products more relevant. They're going to embed financial services into the existing customer experiences they deliver. Um, They're going to take advantage of the brand affinity they have because they're already aligned with their customers in some way and they have that customer trust and they're going to use that trust and those experiences to offer payments, to offer financing, to offer insurance and you know, we've seen it happening a little bit with, you know, firms like Apple, the Apple card and so on. I think we're going to see an explosion of that next year um, as lots of brands jump on the bandwagon. So um, you guys, over to you, shoot me down. I absolutely (laughs) will never shoot you down, Benjamin. I could never do such a thing. Uh, No, I think I totally agree. I think this is, yeah, the the rise of 
of niche uh, providers. I think um, I don't want to look at it as like a fragmentation of the market. I think I think people will still go to their traditional financial service providers for some things, but I I think that you know definitely the rise of of community and niche niche uh, providers, so like Greenwood, for example, in the States who are serving the Black um, community, uh, NERVS, uh, Neobank for Musicians, Daylight, LGBTQ+, Majority, Mobile Banking for Newcomers to the US. So these these are all like really niche communities that that have, you know, large, large, uh, lar- large numbers uh, among them. But I think definitely the, the rise in community uh, across the board, even in crypto, like just people gathering together and um solving problems for their communities is, is definitely something that, that I, I do agree that we will see in 2022. And, you know, that coupled with the, 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 the lowered cost to serve and the lowered cost to basically spin things up um, uh, is definitely going to make that happen. Alex, do you have any, do you agree? Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree. I think, I think what will be interesting to see for me, and this is a playing devil's advocate here is that yes, these the marketing efforts that go into branding these propositions to look like something that you know is designed for uh, a specific community is great but i wonder underneath if the the products are actually that different from each other right so yes you could spin up a product that was for a specific community um you know uh in 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 the uk for example but does that product actually offer anything that your you know your monzo account or your hsbc account does is it just a branding thing that is getting people on board and and getting people in into this hype i i I, i'm just playing devil's advocate here but i I wonder whether obviously marketing is very very important and i think the reason why a lot of these neobanks in the uk were so popular is because they marketed it bloody brilliantly right um however i just i feel like the most important thing is to improve the financial well-being of these people do these apps do that for those specific communities i don't have the answer i'm just sort of asking i uh, i agree i think you know even with with, yeah with with and i've said this before i'm on record saying like i've been quite skeptical of Greenwood, you know, like, yes, you can have a bank that's serving black, the black community, but what exactly are you doing to serve the black community? What, what specific things are, and they haven't really come out with anything concrete, but I'd be curious, like about a company like majority, which is, you know, helping uh, newcomers to the U S like, are they helping people build credit scores and showing people how to do that? Are they showing people, um, how to navigate, you know, the, how to be employed with here's with your, um, a degree from a certain country, how does that translate in into the US? Like there's niche problems and I, I wonder if they're they're solving those, Benjamin. Yeah, because a few years ago I'd have been very skeptical. I remember when some of the first um investment management firms, so sort of female investors came out, like Elvest. I was looking at it and thinking, really, you know, is the way that women invest so different to the way that men invest? And actually when you dig into it, you find that, okay, well, we're talking about sweeping generalizations across millions of people. Actually, yes, there are, you know, women, as I mentioned earlier, do think a little bit differently about their investments, arguably a, bit, a little bit more thoughtfully. Um, but also the way in which they want to be served is a little bit different. And when you dig into the needs of different customers, you know, um, Aguero, you, you know, you mentioned sort of black communities and, you know, often people in the black communities get excluded um, because of elements of prejudice among, you know, a minority perhaps, but, um, you know, in certain areas. Um, and actually, that's a bad experience. And so companies that are setting out to create better experiences and really understanding and listening to the needs of those customers do have a place. Um, I also agree with Alex that some of it is just marketing, right? Ultimately, some of these firms will sit on the same underlying platforms and deliver the same experience with a different logo on it. 
But that's okay because, you know, all of us choose brands and we associate with different things. You know, think about the car industry, right? You know, a Volkswagen is basically the same as a Seat, which is basically the same as an Audi, but people will buy one or the other because they prefer it. Um, you know, there was a time in the UK when the top three insurance companies, Churchill, Direct Line and Tesco, were all owned by the same group, it was the same insurance. But people had strong preferences about, you know, the dog or the, you know, whatever. <laughs> so, you know, I think, I think you, I think we will see this. I think this sort of community-based marketing will will grow, and that affinity-based marketing. Some of it will be real efforts to make the lives of people better. Others will just be a branded opportunity, and will be a bit rubbish. And that will evolve over time. But there you go. There's my prediction. And, and so, uh, next year's podcast, we can shoot that one down. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Any final thoughts um, about the coming year? Any last things? Um, I My last thing is basically just like the right, like I'm excited to see, you know, the crypto mullet. So DeFi uh, in the front, sorry, crypto fintech in the front and DeFi, so decentralized finance in the back. Um, really, there's, you know, Visa recently has had a lot of really interesting developments around this uh, this year. So Kirsten keen to see how... Um, how banks are running and not walking into decentralized finance. Yeah, me too. I I agree. And I think I'm also looking forward to some of these DeFi propositions that aren't geared towards. So I think there's sometimes a, an issue in, in, in the sort of crypto world around uh, the classic saying, which is a solution in search of a problem. Right. And I think it would be great to actually find some problems. Some, and, I think, and I know there are people doing this you know, problems and those solutions being solved by things like DeFi and, and crypto. I think I'm looking forward to more of that personally. Fantastic. Well, there'll be more of that on the um, Blockchain Insider predictions episode that's, that's coming up with all things crypto. So thank you very much. That wraps up uh, today's discussion. Um, thank you all of our listeners uh, for, for, for joining us today. Um, thank you, Guerra and Alex, uh, for joining me. Where can people find out more about you, uh, Guerra? Yeah, uh, 11fs.com. Uh, I'm a part of the Ventures team, uh, newly branded. So check out uh, what we're up to over there. And I'm also on Twitter, uh, not Guerra. That's a confusing name. <laughs> and Alex? Yeah, so you could find me on Twitter talking about a load of rubbish, basically, at <laughs> Alex Hooper Dev. Um, and so I'm also part of Foundry, so 11fs.com forward slash Foundry. You can come and see that we are building the FinTech OS, which is really exciting. And you can find me, Benjamin Ensor, on LinkedIn uh, or on 11fs.com. And like Guerra, I'm part of 11fs Ventures. Um, so thank you all very much indeed for listening. Uh, if you like what you've heard, um, please subscribe to our podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review or send us some feedback because it really helps us uh, make it better to um, understand what you like and, and don't like about the show and how we can make it better. Um, so as always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or email podcast at 11FS.com. Thank you very much and have a great year and goodbye. <laughs>